Spotlights is a series of online events and publications focusing on a particular group of victim survivors who are often hidden from services. As part of Safe Life Spotlight on honour-based violence and forced marriage, this week my colleague Deirdre went to London to meet Dr Sundari Anitha, a reader in criminology at the University of Lincoln. In last week's Spotlight podcast, Deirdre spoke with Anitha about intersectionality, coercion and forced marriage. This week they build on that discussion to talk about how transnational abandonment has become a newly recognised form of domestic abuse within particular communities. We hope you find this as interesting and informative as we have. Thinking more about forced marriage and some of the kind of associated risks, I know one of your areas of research is around transnational marriage abandonment. Is that right? Yeah. Um, And I know it's quite a newly recognised form of of gender-based violence. Can you explain that a bit more and how it might be linked to forced marriage or not? Okay. Um, So I've recently completed a piece of um, research on, on transnational abandonment of wives and it's a problem that has has not been recognized so far, so it might be a term that's new to practitioners. So it, it's, a pro, it's a problem that might affect uh, women from countries where, where migration takes place to okay. the UK. So what, um, what it means is, is when an Indian, in the context of India, when an Indian origin man goes back to India and gets married, mm-hmm. and um, he might come back to the UK with the woman, mm-hmm. and once they're in the UK... They might, uh, following a period of abuse, uh, domestic violence, if the woman um, um, protests, if she resists, if she refuses to accept her um, the state of the marriage, then the man uh, takes her back to India on the pretext of a holiday mm-hmm. and leaves her there, mm-hmm. um, sometimes coming back here with her passport, and as soon as he comes back, he can revoke her visa. Okay. And so once he's revoked her visa, she has no other, no means Wow. Of coming back, she has no means of securing a divorce. She has no means of taking part in divorce proceedings to ins- uh, to gain financial rights, and in some cases, it might mean that he abandons her with her uh, with the, their children back in India. Um, in some cases, he might hold on to the child and take her back there and leave her there and separate her from the child. So, in those contexts, it's possible that practitioners encounter that family through the social services who might be involved with the child. Okay. But they may not recognize that um, what's happened is transnational abandonment because what they're hearing is the man's account and he might say she's just left, she's gone okay. back. And so for practitioners who are in that situation, the immediate, that's a red flag. Okay. They need to find out why she's gone back. They need to ascertain from her whether she went back willingly or whether she was abandoned. Mm. And for Kafka's, that's a big issue. Yeah. Because at the moment, we've come across cases from our practitioners where... The husband said the woman had just left and Kafka's were involved, but they didn't recognize that this was an issue of abandonment. Mm. And in one case where they tried to talk to the woman and eventually it turned out that they'd spoken to the man's mother who pretended to be his wife because mm. it was on the phone and they weren't look, looking out because they weren't aware that there was a risk that she had been abandoned. They weren't alert. They weren't asking the right questions. Right. And, and so it was, they treated it as a routine assessment when actually it was a case of a particular form of domestic violence, right. which is very little known. So that kind of goes on to my next question, which is um, a woman maybe is brought 
back to her home country, what what what's there for her? What risks are there? What opportunities? What can life maybe look like for her when she goes back there? So, um, for someone who's come to the UK and then who's been taken back and abandoned there, there can be there there will be several risk factors and several additional vulnerabilities. So, to start with, she may not be accepted by her own family because mm-hmm. she's um, for not making the marriage work. There's a huge amount of stigma attached to being abandoned yep. and the failure of marriage. She may not have a place in her natal family. Her family may not want her back there. Um, and through my own research um, that I just finished, I also found that in many cases her dowry is appropriated by her husband's family. Yeah. And and dowry is a particular form of transaction of goods or wealth, which takes place upon marriage or following marriage. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it can lead um, take place over several years. Mm-hmm. And in the context of the Indian subcontinent, particularly India, but also in Pakistan and Bangladesh, we are finding out now. Dowry is a form of inheritance that's given to the woman before the death of the parents. So, and it's a form of inheritance that takes place upon marriage. And so, as far as her family are concerned, she's had her inheritance. So, where the man and his family appropriate that money, she's now come back to her family home without any inheritance. Okay. And so he has to come back to India and divorce her. And and in many of these cases, the men uh, initiate divorce proceedings in the UK, where it's usually a paper application, mm. and they may fraudulently, um, uh, you know, uh, forge her consent. Or in many cases, after six weeks, if there is no response, the divorce proceeds anyway. Mm. So the man may um, file the divorce papers in the UK, and he may, for all practical purposes, in the UK be divorced. But as far as she's concerned, she's still married in India because the divorce hasn't taken place. So she can't, she can't marry again. And um, one of the women I spoke to, um, can I tell you a bit about her? Because she yeah. really touched me. Yeah. Um, so I'll call her Chandni. And I spoke to her in Gujarat, and she was a teacher in a girls' school. And um, she came to the UK, she, uh, uh, following, this, uh, following an arranged marriage with this man. And um, she says the day after she came to the UK, her father-in-law, she's uh, in a family home with her in-laws and her husband, her father-in-law took her to a factory to be interviewed, and within two days of coming to the UK, she was set to work. So she was a teacher in India, and she was working, doing a manual job in a factory, packing um, medicines. So she was set to work for six days a week, and on the seventh day, which was Sunday, she was uh, she had tuition set up all day, Gujarati classes for children in the neighborhood, and all the money had to go to the in-laws. She also discovered her husband had a problem with, um, uh, was addicted to drugs. And as far as the family were concerned, they expected the marriage to cure him of his addiction. They thought through her love she was going to transform him yeah. and cure him of uh, his addiction. He, he was never home. He was away for long periods. She suspected he was involved with another woman who the family um, weren't, you know, weren't willing to accept. Perhaps she might have not been South Asian. She was never very sure about what was going on there. Um, there was a lot of pressure on her from the family to produce a child because they thought if she had a child, then maybe he'll come back. Maybe he'll become a part of this family again, her husband. Um, um, but she refused to have any sexual relations with him. She said, I don't even know you. You, you never talk to me. You don't know me as a person. How can, I have, um, how can I be intimate with you? And so he complained to his mother saying, oh, she doesn't um, let me touch her. Uh, one day she came back from work and she said her mother-in-law gave her um, something to drink and she doesn't remember anything that happened after that and next morning she woke up and she had bruises all over her body um, and um, she asked everyone what had happened and that's how she realized that um, her husband had raped her mm. and she's, she's completely traumatized and through 
connection she made at work um she wasn't allowed phone she wasn't allowed to call her family so through someone she knew at work she borrowed the mobile and called up someone um a relative a friend of a relative who was in the UK and they came and uh, took her out of that home and within she didn't know about no recourse to public funds she didn't know what the law was here so her first instinct was to go back to her own home flee so she went back to india and once she was there she thought about her rights she th- thought about all the money she'd earned while she'd been here she'd been here for um um i think about two years and she thought she was entitled to that to her dowry um and she thought she wanted justice she wanted a resolution but she realized she couldn't come back because of the visa had been revoked and he refused to come to india to divorce her and um um they took all her money and they retained her dowry and she since then she's uh, she's come as um, when i spoke to her she had worked her way back in society there was a huge amount of stigma the family were you know were no longer invited to social occasions but by then she'd become the head teacher of her school she had mm. in terms of her occupation she'd done really well though socially the family was still isolated and when i met her she said i want to adopt a baby girl i'm going to make her as strong as me mm. and it, it was such a she had come through all of that and there was a whole uh, you know through that victimization she was a real survivor and a few months later i spoke to her again and she said she wasn't allowed to adopt the girl because as far as the laws concerned she was still married and he had refused to come to india to you know divorce her so her life was in a limbo so all she had though she had managed to get out of that situation in some way she could never move on Wow. And I felt those are the kind of consequences and this was the um, of all the people I spoke to 57 women women and this was the one person who had managed to rebuild her life but even then there was a point beyond where she couldn't move on because mm. the way the laws are mm. and because when men managed to um, cross borders and abandon women there are very few options for those women and then so in her case she had no children but there's a whole range of issues for women who have children So on one hand the children could be held back in the UK and the women are abandoned there. Yeah. In which case lawyers are able to invoke article 8 the rights to right to family life. Mm-hmm. And there are possibilities though it's very difficult to argue that the family been forcibly separated. The mother has been separated from her child but where the man's abandoned the women and the children together back in the country there are very few avenues for them. Though the child may be a British citizen it's very difficult for you know for them to come make their way back here the visa is impossible to obtain there's no way of ensuring that he gets a maintenance from the father who may be very well off but the children and wife are destitute yeah so it's a form of the whole purpose of abandonment is to make sure she can't claim her yeah. dowry back she can't claim um a uh, custody to her children she can't get remarried she can't be involved in society her family might not accept her i think when lots of practitioners think about domestic abuse and they think a woman's gotten out of a, a violent abusive relationship the threat of death isn't there anymore or whatever it is they think there's hope there but it's almost transnational abandonment seems like a way to continue abuse from afar to continue to abuse them and control them after the relationship ends and so the women that's what they say so one woman said um um when she asked him to come back to india or return her dowry um she, she said he turned back he would say on the phone to her uh, what can you do can you come and get me i'm in the uk um can you reach me there's no way you can reach me so i'm not going to i'm not coming back i'm not doing anything what will you do and she said that's the way the laws are set up there actually is nothing i can do mm. he's mocking me um but he's right 
yeah. the, the, you know, the way the cards are stacked. I have nothing in my hands. And, and this is the life I have to make now. And I feel it's a, it's a form of injustice that we really haven't even begun to understand no. and move towards resolving. For practitioners here, they may well think what they can do in yeah. terms of the women's back, that what can they do. I think the, a key step is um, many of the women have been in the UK at some point and they have been facing a range of um, different forms of domestic violence while they've been in the UK. And we have no recourse to public funds for women who are in that situation, who are facing domestic violence and are recent marriage migrants with insecure immigration status. Now, what, what is really important is to, is to um, convey to those women what their rights are. Yeah. Because as soon as they cross the border, those rights seem to disappear. Yeah. And if there is someone who's contacted you who's facing domestic violence and has no recourse to public funds, then um, you need to open to them the possibility that they might be taken back mm. and abandoned. Mm. So if they're, if they're going back for a family holiday, you need to convey to them that this is one of the... This, this might happen if the children are being... or if the child's being kept in the UK and they're going back from uh, a holiday, then or a wedding, family wedding, they need to know that this might be a ploy to separate the child and the mother. Mm. Do you know what's funny is this brings up all sorts of memories from me being an IDFA. And thinking about many situations when I worked in Tower Hamlets where social workers thought the best solution was, has she thought about going back home? Like, it'd be so easy for her just to take her kids and get out of the abusive situation and not at all considering the, what rights she would be losing by leaving the UK. Um, and these are rights we've fought for a very long time to gain. Yeah. And it seems it's almost as if the perpetrators are one step ahead because yeah. as soon as women have gained those rights, so the no recourse yep. DDV concession came about after a lot of campaigning, nearly 20 years of campaigning. And now this is a way to circumvent that. Yeah. Because if the women uh, left while they were in the UK, if they left because of the violence, then they could. there are, there are routes th through which they can gain in secure immigration status. So as a practitioner who's supporting a woman who may be in an abusive relationship and who, has m who may be considering the option of going back to her home country or might be forced to it's about thinking about what consequences may come as a result of that yeah and also thinking about um uh, was there a dowry involved in the marriage yeah where's the dowry being held yeah and the, the issue of dowry is a broader issue than just um, one that affects women who um, in transnational marriages so dowry is also exchanged among uh, certain communities within the UK, so if yeah. marriage takes place within the UK. So that's something for the practitioners to think of in all of those communities, so particularly mm. communities from South Asia. Um, and one, um, a big form in which dowry is exchanged is jewellery, gold, mm -hmm. which, is, uh, which a woman wears at the time of her marriage. So for practitioners, one very um, practical way in which they could make a difference is um, recovery of possessions. So when someone comes to the refuge, mm -hmm. and it's increasingly difficult to do that but um, I remember from working in the refuge a few years back routinely you would be accompanied by the police and you'd go back to your home mm -hmm. to the woman's home you know with the woman and she would pick up her clothes and yes. her personal possessions now yes. what what I'm hearing is it it's harder to do that now because the police aren't free the resources are you know it's harder to um, free up that time for someone it to is. go with the woman yeah. so it seems to me that this is happening less and less but for someone from, um, say, a South Asian um, uh, country, it's not just possessions you're talking about, though she may talk about it as possessions. 
um, included in those possessions are her jewelry, which is her dowry, her inheritance. Okay. And there's a very small window you have soon after she's left where she can go back and recover all her yeah. gold yeah. because it's her possessions. It's gold. It can be disposed of very easily. Within two months, three months, the family will say, we don't have it. Mm. There's no way you can prove anything. So for accompanying a woman to recover her possessions, if someone um, comes to you and it's a South Asian woman, you need to ask what kind of possessions. Is there dowry there? Okay. And you need to ask for descriptions of that jewellery so that when you go there, you can locate it and mm. bring it back with you at that point. Because uh, yeah. after that, you won't be able to do it and she will lose that without it. She has no security, no financial security. It's a really good thing to know because I think when you think about a woman going into refuge and what you're advising her to take with her, it's about essentials. And I think you automatically think a jewellery isn't an essential, but for her, it is an essential, long-term and short-term. So considering so she, that is yeah. really important. And she may not take it when she leaves, No, but it's about going back and recovering it. In a safe way. In a safe way. Yeah. Um, there'll be evidence, there'll be photographs of the wedding. Yeah. So there, there are forms of, uh, you know, evidence, photographic evidence, because all weddings, there's a lot of video recordings, there's photographs. So you'll have pictures of the jewellery that she's wearing. Yeah. And you can ascertain by looking at the photo album. That they are hers. pieces are hers. Yeah. But and that it's is... It's not difficult, but it's about being aware of the importance of these, these items. Yep. That's very good to know. In terms of talking about transnational abandonment, I've, I've focused on the cases where women are... Um, women migrate following marriage so they come to the UK and then they're taken back and abandoned yeah the vast majority of women who experience transnational abandonment are those who've never crossed borders yeah so the men may come from the UK so they may move um, go to India and get married mm. and and uh, their family their parents might still be living in India mm. and following marriage they make promises that they'll apply for spouse visa mm-hmm. and they come to the UK with the dowry yep and then um, and she's living with her in-laws uh, where she, in, in their home where she's expected to do all the housework and it's only in the months, sometimes in the years following marriage that she realizes that he never intended to apply for a visa for her and the purpose of the marriage was to secure the dowry and to secure um, someone to do all the domestic labor for the elderly parents back in India and we think that this is a problem that might be growing in the context of immigration restrictions mm. which mean that it's harder for elderly dependent relatives to get a visa to come to the UK. So we think that the men might be entering into these marriages in order to secure a carer right. and for the transfer of wealth, the dowry. And some of these dowries are huge. We're talking about £30,000, £40,000. Wow. And some of these men um, have histories. It's their third or fourth marriage. So if you think about it, it's a form of exploitation that they've perfected, really, yeah. because there is no outcome for them, no comeback for them. So they can go back and marry again and come with the transfer of money and, and knowing that they will have a, someone who, who will do all the work in their household. And um, in many of the cases, uh, women I spoke to, there were children. It had been seven, eight years since the marriage. There had been two children and they were simply abandoned there. And again, many practitioners in the UK may not think it's something they can do anything about directly, but it's something for our courts to think about. So mm. where the women are abandoned in, in those countries and they've never stepped uh, in the UK, they still have rights to maintenance. Mm. Their children have rights to maintenance because the father may be earning adequate amounts of money in the UK while the children and the women are destitute. They also have a right to justice because they've been abused and the woman's been abused, exploited in India by a British resident. And so, so there are rights that she could avail 
to gain financial security and to gain justice to secure a divorce which our courts need to be thinking about so one thing that the courts could do is um is make so there are some provisions for enforcement of maintenance orders across the border mm. but they are disused at the moment okay so one thing the courts could think about is to we are increasingly living in a transnational world people migrate so we need to be thinking we are very good on dealing with these issues when it comes to state security terrorism to cyber security yeah, yeah? but we're not very good at dealing with issues cross border issues when it comes to women's rights so the state needs to be thinking about you know not seeing national borders as a barrier to securing women's rights so where those women have secured maintenance maintenance orders in india we need to be or pakistan wherever we need to be able to enforce them here it's only when men can't get away with it anymore then it becomes less um profitable for them mm. to engage in these forms of violence so we have to hold them to account otherwise yeah. it will continue because there are no consequences Yeah. for it. And there are a lot of advantages for them. They gain financially, they gain sexually, they mm. gain uh services in terms of domestic labor. So it's it's really about abusing those power inequalities yeah. which are already there, gendered power inequalities, also inequalities between nations. But and this gaps uh, yeah. as well. Yeah. And, but these inequ- but it's facilitated by the by the silence of the law. Yeah. That is a lot to think about. Obviously important to be thinking about because it's not just about what practitioners frontline practitioners are doing it's about what the law needs to be doing about what the court needs doing it's about seeing where the gaps are and filling them and yeah so we yeah. have a long way to go yeah but at least we're starting to talk about it at least it's starting to be recognized yeah and that's where it begins what um say a woman tries to leave that relationship the husband's not there she's caring for these parents that aren't hers she's not getting anything out of it what consequences are there for her she leaves that relationship yeah There's a huge stigma um if she has children then she has to think about whether her own family will be willing to um accept the children whether okay. they, or whether those children are risking destitute made destitute but the biggest uh, consequence is stigma and we've also found that in smaller places uh, women couldn't get jobs because they've been abandoned mm. so the presumption was there must be something wrong with you that you've been abandoned yeah and so that stigma was a big barrier and financial destitution So yeah so not having any means because the family had spent so much money on the dowry mm. and and they were they had borrowed heavily in order to enable that marriage to take place and so it was both social and uh, financial consequences yeah um so the notion of honor and the idea of honor based violence is something that interlinks and kind of is woven through different forms of these um of of domestic violence so in the case of women who have been abandoned um the honor of the family the status of the family in society is often tied up to the uh, to whether that daughter is living her life in conformity with the gender rules so mm-hmm. um whether her marriage is uh, whether you know she's performing her gender role within the marriage she's whether um she's um her marriage is successful or is seen to be successful whether she has children preferably male children so they depending on whether um, on the kind of family on whether they are in a rural location or urban location those expectations can change but the honor of the whole family is tied up to the daughter's performance of gender and mm-hmm. whether she's living her life according to those gendered rules and that has many implications so particularly when there's domestic violence if if the woman mm, talks about the violence if she tells other people uh, seeks help if she's trying to leave the relationship all of that can bring dishonor on the family mm. so there's very strong moral sanctions against disclosure against help seeking and particularly against leaving
the violent situation, and that can affect uh, families within the UK from particular communities and and back there. And those consequences continue long after the marriage ends. And so, in another piece of research that I completed recently on women who had um, left situation of domestic violence, um, some of the women had left more than 20 years back and they were still not accepted within their community and they talked about and one issue that came up again and again was the level of social isolation they faced and they had left that violent situation they were trying to rebuild their lives but there was a level of constraint that was ever present in their lives so one woman talked about how she doesn't socialize within her community or every time she's in a social situation where there are other members of her community she has to think about what she says she says I don't tell them about I say my um, husband's dead or um, because she says every time I, um, I speak to someone I have to think about what are the judgments they're going to make about me mm. and what are the assumptions they will um, you know have if I tell them I left my husband and so she says there's a part of me that I have to forever hold back and I can never open my heart out to anyone and and what it means is that I don't have any close friends and some of these these women were in very elderly they were in their 60s and they were thoroughly isolated and I, um, I think that's another aspect of... We've had refuge services in this country for many years now. So there'll be this whole generation of women who access refuges 30 years back and are now elderly in a context where the state care is shrinking. But uh. they have no family, no community, no wider set of fr close friends to fall back on because they've lost all of that when they left that violent relationship. Yeah. So, so I spoke to one woman and she was... She said I, she was ill a couple of weeks before I interviewed her. And she said, if I died, um, no one would have known. You would have come knocking on my door. And that's when you would have found out that I was dead. And she said, because I don't see anyone. Day, from day to day, from week to week, I have no interaction with other human beings. And so that's, again, that's something I suspect we will become more aware of as mm. that generation grows older. So there are very particular consequences of leaving and there are very particular barriers to rebuilding your lives in, in the context of these notions of honour. Yeah. I think one of the things that seems to keep cropping up is not just being in a violent and abusive situation, but the risks associated with leaving that often many women encounter. You could be killed, um, you could be seriously harmed. But then for very, very long thereafter, they're still dealing with the consequences of being alone, of having no financial security, of not marrying again, of being ostracised. It seems to go on for quite some time. And So it's, it's a lot... Yeah, there's so much to overcome. Yeah. But I also, at the same time, also got a sense of how they were survivors and they, yeah. had, made, and they had made that life work for them. Though, yeah. that, though those constraints were ever present in their life, I was also mm, very powerfully struck by how against all of these odds women had rebuilt their lives and made something of a place yeah sounds like a good place to end <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me <laughs> it's you. been very interesting thank you for listening if you'd like to find out more about Safe Life Spotlight on honour-based violence and forced marriage, please go to our website, safelives.org.uk, where we will be uploading new content every week, each exploring a different aspect of honour-based violence and forced marriage. If you'd like to participate in the discussion, you can join in the live Twitter Q&A conversation on June the 8th from 10 to 11am. 
just go to hashtag your choice.